Hello, everyone. You're listening to No Librarians Allowed. My name is Lydia. This is Carla. And I'm Holly. <laughs> Good job. <laughs> you got the cue. Good Nailed one. it. <laughs> we are super thrilled to welcome a robot handler and makerspace librarian extraordinaire, Holly Arneson, with us today on to No Librarians Allowed to talk about what some might call the middle ages of makerspaces, or is it the toddler years? We will find out. I feel like that's our cue to go to some music that's like, special report. Yeah, so I was browsing around somewhere, and I, of course, never remember where, but I saw on a like a listing of conferences or a conference listing, a panel discussion or a presentation that said, the middle age of makerspaces. Basically, now we're in our sort of five-year mark for makerspaces, so what does that mean? And I kind of laughed when I saw it because that seems so funny to me that like five years old would be the middle age of something. But, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we skipped a few steps. Yeah. <laughs> also, like, what is the death year of the makerspaces? <laughs> But yeah, I thought that that was really interesting thinking about sort of how far have we come in the last five years with makerspaces? What do we know now that we didn't know before? What's kind of on the horizon or what are what are libraries thinking about now with makerspaces that maybe wasn't the case before? Have we gotten things down pat and other things are still in the Wild West? So what's going on with our middle-aged makerspaces? <laughs> other than slower metabolism. <laughs> <laughs> I definitely feel that we were still, I think, in a period of development, in my view, where we're still trying to find out what the right formula is for offering this kind of service in library spaces. And some of it, I think, varies based on the community that you're situating your makerspace in. Some of it varies on of course, the level of institutional support and the resources that you have to draw upon. But I think also we're still kind of figuring out some of the basic challenges around access. And a really interesting problem or challenge or whatever you want to call it that, that I feel like I've been working on and I feel like people have been working on with me and supporting me in is the taking it from, you know, you put that tool in the makerspace to like, how do you get your staff comfortable using it? How do you provide access to it equitably to the public? How do you move the public closer and closer to operating that tool with less and less mediation from your staff? And so it's an evolving process and I think we're just still figuring it out. So I do, I do feel that we're in the toddler step still. <laughs> and I feel sometimes like I see my toddler wobble. <laughs> <laughs> a little bit. Put your hands out so it doesn't fall, but you don't want to be too involved. Yeah, I don't want to be smothering. Yeah. You know, I don't want to be like helicopter parent. Yeah, I'm, I don't want to be a helicopter parent, but it's yeah, you do see the wobbling sometimes. What are some of the things that you think about when you talk about access? So, what does that mean for makerspaces? So, I think access. There's a few dimensions to it. I mean. A really basic part of it is just people feeling comfortable enough when they see a space that looks like it has some different tools or maybe has a very digitally focused um, tool set. And for a lot of people, just getting them feeling comfortable enough to step inside the perimeter of that space and to, and to explore or ask questions is a challenge. So that's kind of one aspect of it. 
I think also really figuring out, you know, if we're offering a 3D printing service, for example, what are we offering access to? Is it access to 3D printing production? Is it access to directly operating the printers or operating them with supervision? And I, I think there's a lot of benefits in both models of access and there's obvious um, risks and challenges as well. And in my experience, we've certainly had a lot of experience of one of those kinds of access models and I think mm. are really looking at ways to move to the next, which is more more direct um, customer or I guess public. <laughs> it's hard for me to let that word go, but <laughs> more members of the public coming in and, and directly being able to learn about, learn how to operate, and then actually take that step to operate the tool themselves and have that really rich learning experience that comes out of having that access and having that opportunity to not only operate the equipment, but also maybe make a mistake with that equipment, which is a scary part of it. Yeah. So kind of the comfort that you would have in shop without the cliquiness of some shops that, and by that I mean like a dedicated space, right? Where, where woodworking or metalworking tools are made, which have their own culture or vibes. Whereas in a public space, in a public library, we try so hard to consider the welcoming and the, and the atmosphere. And yet the trade-off may be that either deep expertise or just repeat access and, and time spent in and even the relationships built in like taken a project forward. Maybe I'm not being fair, but that's my impression. I think it's it's a really interesting challenge like in the nonprofit maker space world to see how there's a lot of there's a lot of tension around like tool maintenance and tool use and leaving tools in particular conditions and you know somebody leaving paper towels in a space where you can have um, sparks off of a off of a metalworking tool all of those kinds of issues one of the most interesting challenges that i think libraries or other educational institutions that are really exploring pushing their services further are going to have to cope with is how do you like how do you kind of build this generous and patient environment where people are accepting of the fact that other people are going to make mistakes and in terms of that that issue that you that you mentioned around some spaces not feeling inclusive feeling very like cliquey very like club based some of that comes down to how conflict is handled around tool access and around tool maintenance and conditions so it's going to be an interesting challenge for us as we take those steps towards that because we're dealing with the general public you know and we're trying to we're trying to make sure that you know people who are coming in are having that opportunity to try or to engage in different levels but you know what happens if someone repeatedly after taking your 3d printing intro course repeatedly crashes the 3d printer tool head and causes damage what are you know what does the library or the what does the person overseeing that space do at that point how do they address that how are they going to handle that situation what does that conversation look like so it's really interesting to me because in the spaces that I've been working in, I think we're definitely seeing people and we're seeing our staff develop some really interesting strategies around facilitating drop-in project work and creation. 
and managing expectations about what people will be able to do that day and you know how long certain processes will take and how much the staff member will do and how much the member of the public will do. But then when it comes into, you know, we hand you the keys to that 3D printer, how does that change the nature of that facilitation when there is a little more risk involved? And I, I'm really interested and excited to explore that question. And I think it, there's going to be times where we get it right. And some of it might come down to us picking tools that are a little bit tougher, are what I like to call public library grade, which is just below <laughs> military grade. Yeah. grade. <laughs> and probably on the same par as school grade. <laughs> Customers doing for themselves. Is that something that has evolved over the since the beginning of the makerspace? Do you think that's sort of a normal trend? I think that some spaces in Canada Canada started out with a with a very intentional like actually we're going to use volunteers um, they will be directly teaching people these skills and hmm. people will be doing things and this community that's building will kind of maintain so some smaller libraries usually have taken that approach and so I think that that approach has been around for a, um, a while but in terms of a larger urban public library those services tend to be quite heavily mediated right now by staff and you know some of it is we're still learning the technology and we're not quite sure yet how to teach other people effectively how to use it and some of it is i guess a little bit of risk aversion as well but also mathematically there's more people walking through the door in a large urban setting versus a smaller community sooner or later you're going to know like 80% of it but here i would think in in large public libraries who have maker spaces there'd be a lot of first-time users or maybe kind of, I don't know, I don't know, it'd be interesting to study, like, is there the type of person who walks in, tries, maybe buys their own equipment and goes off? And then what percentage is uh, returning, right? Yeah. I mean, for my work, I, I definitely have the sense that we have some core regulars and that shifts over time. It shifts as people's life circumstances or interests um, change. I think also we've had people come to us and then They've heard the concept makerspace, they've heard maybe that we have a 3D printer or that we have a particular tool and they try something out with us and then they definitely go ahead and they invest in their own if they can. If they can't, they maybe find a space that allows them to explore in a little more depth and get a little more hands-on. And so the question then is, does that space exist in a community like ours? And what are the barriers to entry around that? And how can we sort of complement what others are doing in the community and in an interesting way like serve as a hub that's connecting connecting people with different different places to make or to create but still providing providing some opportunity within the library itself to get into a little depth of exploration in new areas what about people who use the makerspace learning from each other in your experience how much have projects taken off you know so there's you've talked about the access and the staff and the mediation, the tools. Mm -hmm. But there is something to be said for going to a public space with a well-defined code of conduct um, that's free, but also knowing that there's other people interested in similar things. And on any given day, someone's working on really cool stuff. And just for like even hanging out or dropping in and observing, like that's incredible value. We forget, right? Like, I can't get that in my own house. As much as I can browse on the internet, there's only one... <laughs> space in the city where people are doing cool things they have to physically go to. So in your experience, how much of it is kind of bouncing ideas among users? In some ways, when that happens, 
I put my feet up on my desk and I'm like, ah, we did it. Right. This is why we opened the makerspace. Right. So it, it doesn't always happen right away and it doesn't always happen um, the same for each person even who has those kinds of interactions from what I observe. But sometimes it is a little bit staff driven, you know, someone will pop in with a question and will and will not be quite sure how to help them with something that's maybe a little bit more granular and nitty gritty about a piece of video editing software, for example. But we know that one of our regulars has been in-depth exploring this software for weeks or months and you know that we know when they're generally in and that sort of thing and if there's an opportunity i mean we're always respecting privacy as well and maintaining privacy and and trying to keep it a safe space but if there is that opportunity we might introduce customer to another person and have them you know say oh you had this question about such and such this in this software program can you show so and so how to do this and I find that people are quite generous with that knowledge and generous with teaching our staff how to do things too and I think that that's such a it's a wonderful thing to observe you start to see those seeds of community in your space forming and um, maybe growing into something greater and we have had people who've participated in a community jam program, make plans to jam and make a booking to use our recording space to jam at other times. And again, that's when I have that moment of like, this is why we open the makerspace because people are, they're making cultural products and that's really valuable in and of itself, but they're also connecting with each other and forming community around learning and trying things out and spending time together. So I think that's really valuable as well. And yeah, I just get so, I, I start to vibrate when that happens. I'm just trying to think if there's another space or service in the library that does that and to that degree. Something that is around learning, that is around community. Book clubs might do that to some extent, mm -hmm. right? And programs may or may not. So when we think of traditional kind of staff-led programs, they may be a little bit too structured. You're right, we rarely have an opportunity just to mess around with ideas and knowledge. And a lot of it is very individual, like what you're talking about is very communal too, right? So without making this about book clubs necessarily, there is a difference between private makerspace and a public one. And the same for a program run inside the library or book club meeting in a living room, so. In... Your makerspace, your makerspace. <laughs> um, it's our makerspace. <laughs> it's everyone's makerspace. What are some of the factors that you think contribute to that kind of environment? So what is helping that along? I mean, this is so library 101 in some ways, but honestly, like, if people are greeted, that really goes a long way to making them feel comfortable and making them feel like they're welcome to participate and jump in. It's also giving each other room to talk. Um, so making sure that we're asking and really listening to the answer that comes back. In some, in some other maker spaces that I've experienced, sometimes people are pretty excited to share what they know and that's fine, but sometimes that comes a little bit at the cost of genuine listening to what the other person's experience is. And so kind of giving room for people to articulate what their interest is or their, their excitement is and just waiting, waiting until they have a chance to really articulate it and then jumping back in. It's hard for me to even think of what that skill is called. It's oranges and peaches, y'all. <laughs> <laughs> 
I feel like that's a reference that I don't get. <laughs> it's also Library 101. It's a test of reference skills. If yes. you can read between the lines and interpret and listen and yeah. try to anticipate rather than... It's ask more questions about what the person is looking for. Yeah, so, so I guess maybe <laughs> what we've come to is reference skills, essentially. And I know that you and I have talked about how we've done so much technology troubleshooting training, and we feel like we've actually been doing reference skill training mm -hmm. all along. And it, it's just, it's particularly applied to technology. <laughs> I'm sorry, I, I don't mean to be Cats giving away all of our secrets, but <laughs> it really is that. And yeah, so I guess if we, if we draw on some of the traditional language, it's a little bit of reader's advisory and a little bit of reference all mixed in to one you know, high-tech environment where robots could just, you know, suddenly enter the situation and offer somebody a Kleenex or something like that. Let's imagine that you have the Makerspace baby book in front of you, full of all of the cute photos of the Makerspace as a baby <laughs> and marking its important milestones like baby Makerspace's first, I don't know, 3D printed object. What are the things that you think stand out for you in that book? So what's in the Baby Maker Space book? That's such a good question. I'm going to stall for time to think about it <laughs> by turning that question back to you, because I know you also have some experience with this project. <laughs> I think in the Baby Maker Space book, there would be a piece of the ribbon from the ribbon cutting ceremony where the mayor of the city was delivered the scissors by a tiny robot, a little Lego robot. Safely also, of course. holding the scissors safely. Yes. That was a very important design re requirement. Yeah. <laughs> no one was injured. I think photos of some of the like planning phases, so some of the work behind the scenes that went into putting it together. I remember a trip to Axe Music to basically plead ignorance on anything that should go into a sound recording space and be like, hey guys, like, can you help us? And luckily the guy who was working there was a friend of a person who works at the library who happens to also be a musician. And he spent probably two hours with us helping mm. us figure out what we needed in the space. My first memory of someone from the community being very excited about the space and invested in making it succeed mm. and being willing to share their knowledge day the pigeon flew into the makerspace. <laughs> <laughs> That's kind of on my list too, actually. <laughs> Do you count addition of new tools necessarily as important or is it less about the introduction? You know, because you're always thinking about expanding services and new products and tools come on the market, but is that as important as more of those memorable moments as uh, handling, you know, making progress in a relationship with, a regular patron coming up with like a really fun photo shoot in front of uh, the green screen and then you know launching their career like I'd have to say that there's no doubt that when we get a new tool um, it's exciting and I think we're getting one of the things that we're getting is a little better actually at selection like what's the right speed for the library how tough does it have to be is it a commercial grade application is it a consumer grade application so those are all exciting and interesting things but I think for me, the memorable moments and the really valuable moments are the first time that I see the tool used for something that either I could not have imagined or I could only have hoped would happen. So, I mean, I've talked about this one in the past, but the Ukrainian dance troupe who 
uh, basically asked for a scale reproduction of a traditional loaf that they use for their performances. A bread loaf. A bread loaf. <laughs> um, and the way that our staff scanned that using really primitive 3D scanning tools and then, you know, quartered the loaf in the software <laughs> so because it was too large to print in our single volume chamber. Um, and then so printed off four quarters of a loaf of bread and then, you know, saw after the way that it had been finished and post-processed so that because the, tr the troop was traveling with it. And so they were finding it difficult to have the loaf made or in the right condition. I could not have ever imagined if you told me at the beginning of the makerspace that someone would do that. But I'm so thrilled that they did, that they found a way to explore this technology that was like useful, but also interesting and culturally relevant as well, right? So I, I, anytime that sort of thing happens, I'm really excited. I mean, I think another one that was a milestone was the first time that we 3D printed a prosthetic, a non-medical prosthetic hand. And, you know, that was for a high school teacher who was taking, taking it into a club that was meeting at lunchtime and they were gonna learn how to rig this non-medical prosthetic hand. And, you know, recently I think a really meaningful one was when the staff helped someone basically 3D print crease syllabics for teaching kindergarten students um, how to spell their own names uh, using the, those symbols. So those are things that I couldn't have said like, yeah, this will happen, but I'm so grateful and excited that we got a chance to participate in that way for the community and to be accessible to, to them and make that possible. Um, and to learn about them too, to learn about the stories that the people who are driving these requests, you know, or these interactions, like it's just humbling in so many ways. The time that I had to tell the makerspace staff they were no longer allowed to use open flame in the space and they had to talk to their manager first is a pretty, like, um, a pretty notable one as well. Um, we were joking about that recently. Uh, and so those are some things that really stick out for me on the timeline. Or the baby book. <laughs> what do you think that your like, new mom concerns were at the time? When it first opened, and what are your challenges with your five-year-old? At the beginning, it was it was like, how do we keep this thing going, basically? And I I know that there are other libraries out there that are probably maybe questioning the value of continuing this, or questioning still whether to even try it in the first place. And so, how to keep it running? Like when you don't really know the technology that well yet, when you have staff who are feeling quite hesitant and rightfully so about engaging with that and and not just engaging but also like facilitating the public's engagement and then also like just down to resourcing too right like do we do we have enough staff to keep this thing afloat have we figured out the budgeting that's required to keep this thing afloat those sorts of things right so the question is how do we take that next step to being bigger and you know what sorts of 
there are opportunities to change practices, I think, in transition and um, to step away or to try new ways of delivering a particular service that maybe we haven't quite found the right the right magic for the right recipe for delivering successfully. Like it's not, it, we're not seeing the use that we kind of expect someone could have or the depth of engagement that we expect someone could have. Do you have an example that you're thinking of? Um, yeah, like a, this is a really good one because we were talking about it, but the, the other day in the office, but the Arduino and Raspberry Pi, those are such powerful tools for learning in this area. Uh, we've offered some courses or some some sort of like one-off workshops on it, but I don't think that we've really got to the level that we can get with this tool in terms of supporting people's exploration and engagement and, and learning around microcontrollers. And some of it comes down to focus a little bit. I mean, one of the things that's happened recently is we got a backpack for a, a HTC Vive headset. And this allows the person wearing the HTC Vive, the virtual reality headset to go tetherless, like they're no longer tethered to a desk. And so you would not believe how much staff time has gone into figuring out how to deliver this service safely. And like, what sorts of things do we need to tell somebody as they're getting set up in this rig so that they know what the bounds are? They are not so overwhelmed by wearing the headset that they're not missing safety information about how to use it. So mm -hmm. yeah, before it was like, okay, sit in this chair, here's your barf bucket beside you just in case, <laughs> yeah. but at least they're seated and they're not going to get out of the chair. <laughs> yeah. The VR, the yeah. VR bucket, we called it. It was labeled with a labeling, <laughs> a label maker, which is totally a library <laughs> thing to do, but solving service provision issues like that. Sometimes it's hard to balance program development where for a staff member to feel confident teaching Arduino with no former background in it is a pretty, that's a pretty steep learning curve. And so, you know, it, looking in terms of the system, like what kinds of learning experiences can we design to support them in that? Or what, is there something already in the community? Can we team up with some of our, you know, non-library makerspace friends and get something that will kickstart their engagement with that. So that's a really great example of something where we've had the technology sitting around, but we just have not really found the opportunity in the right circumstances to really bring it to the forefront yet. Mm -hmm. What about getting staff on board or kind of convincing them of the approach and sort of the options and opportunities of this type of service. It sounds like, like you didn't mention it as a new mom concern. <laughs> but, uh, and, and I know in the past you've talked about, you know, some libraries approach you or, or they'll say, yeah, the, the biggest risk to makerspace is the copyright rather than just like the popularity and people getting so on board that they want more and more. And just like managing like the physical realities of um, access and options. So have you found that some staff and colleagues have been on board from day one and like they get and they want to jump in? Is it pretty much like with anything else that's new? You know, there's always kind of early adopters and some people in general see this in line with information services. I think that there's more general buy-in and I think that that comes from some of the, again, some of those really eye-opening or funny or meaningful cultural products that have come out of the project. 
when we tell staff the story of that bread being printed off, like they, they're laughing along with us and they kind of can't believe that it happened, right? But it happened. And so that really gets them thinking past some of the hesitations that there are around, you know, I'm not going to have time to learn this technology or I can't learn this technology. I'm not very good at computers, th those sorts of concerns, which again are, are valid. That's part of it. So telling the story has been a really important part of it and documenting some of the cool things that have happened. But another really important thing is allowing the project and some of the pedagogy that we discovered in the course of doing it to really change how we were approaching staff training as well. So I think you threatened to ask me about constructionism at the top while we were talking. Pop hair. Yeah. Should we bring this in right now? <laughs> yeah. And I want to be clear that I'm not like an educational theorist. I don't really have any formal training in that area. But I did happen to hire somebody who was taking master's courses in that area at the beginning of the makerspace. And worked on a robotics course with them, worked on developing that for staff, and really started to understand the idea of learners generating meaning and how learning experiences could be structured to support that, and also how experiences could be structured to support collaborative learning or generative, where you have people bouncing ideas off of each other to create meaning about what's being done. And when we encountered that, I really like thought about some of the experiences that we'd had previously trying to convince staff to get on board with, mm -hmm. you know, it's helping somebody with an e-reader or it's doing this kind of escalated troubleshooting mm -hmm. with one of the vendors or something like that. And I thought about how taking that sort of lecture approach or that, you know, that kind of traditional, like, here's the content, we feed it to you, you try to regurgitate it back yep. to us and to the member of the public. I just thought about how that was not the richest and the most maybe effective way that we could do things. And so we started redesigning the courses so that if you're going to be facilitating a Lego robotics program, in the course you're building that robot and you are going through the, the steps of like exploring and discovery about it, and then you're running a robot race as a capping exercise, I guess, but also a way of celebrating and enjoying what's been done because robot races are exciting and robot dance-offs are even better. And that's in the part two of the training, but really trying to have people working together in this collaborative um, generative environment where we're not providing all of the answers for them. We're not pushing content at them. There's some room for them to step in and ask questions and so we become facilitators of kind of forcing them to ask those questions or to answer some of those questions by not always providing the answer. The feedback that we got was staff really enjoyed the experience. They felt intimidated at the outset, but then going through the experience of building the robot or whatever the case may be, they enjoyed it. They, you know, overcame challenges that they would have found frustrating if it was by themselves or they're trying to like understand and not have a chance to test things out. So generally feeling more confident and excited to try it with customers. And that's such a shift from what I'd experienced in the past as a library technology trainer. To me, that's a really interesting product of the makerspace is that it has changed our training at, at the library because 
it is now looking for ways to either do scenario-based learning or very immersive learning where you're in a situation with your peers and you're trying to figure something out and you're overcoming challenges together, you're hitting frustration together, or you're having successes together. That's a really powerful uh, experience for people to go through and then to form confidence around. Do you have a term for this kind of learning together? Uh, <laughs> a term that you may have coined and now seems to be used all the time. I don't think I coined it. I just, I'm not sure where it's from. Um, so we've been calling this co-learning. I think that's the term you're thinking of. Um, and that's the idea of learning alongside the person who's asking for your help, not feeling like you need to be the expert, um, not feeling like you need to know everything because that is actually not possible and it's not a realistic expectation or a healthy expectation for us to have for ourselves. So having that freedom to say, you know, I don't know what the answer is, but I'm happy to find it out with you or let's try this out together. Okay. Makerspace is now five. Mm -hmm. What are some of the things that you're relieved to no longer have to deal with when the Makerspace was a baby? I mean, I think we're getting better we're getting better at finding that balance between what people can do themselves and what equipment does a better job of supporting that. I, in the past, I felt a lot of stress about making equipment selections because if it goes badly, people can look at an equipment selection that didn't serve the project very well and didn't serve like the audience that you were trying to reach very well. And they can say makerspaces are, are a fad and they're on their way out basically. People can look at just a, a tool selection that didn't quite work out and they can draw a lot. And so I felt pressure in the past to get those decisions right. And in a larger system, I mean, it's a, my privilege to also have the pressure of like making recommendations for things that will be at all of our branches. And so that adds an extra element of that pressure. But I think I've got a better sense now of what types of experiences get picked up quickly, what kinds of interfaces work well for both staff and for the public, what to look for in terms of trying to assess if something is robust enough for our environment. Um, and that comes just from experience. And I think it's helpful if there is some tolerance for risk, not only amongst the leadership, but also amongst our peers as well. And another thing that I've learned in this process is to, when we're making a change, to frame it as this may not work out. Like this, this is something that we're going to try. This project, you know, it might not be delivered in this way at the end, or we might step back from this. And that's, this is a technique, or I don't know, this is a, <laughs> this is a persuasive point that I try to use with my staff when I'm trying to get them to take a step um, towards a type of delivery of something where they're not necessarily feeling 100% on board with it. I've learned that I don't have to be, I don't have to be right all the time. I mean, it helps if I'm, if I'm on the right track in terms of we've identified this customer need and we're going to try to address it in this particular way. But I've also gotten a little more comfortable with saying, you know, I thought that this would work, but it really didn't work that well. And these are the reasons why. It's a hard thing because you invest a lot, I think, as a when you're, especially when you're like a newer professional in your project's landing. 
And it, it is a little bit of luck. It's a little bit of timing. It's a lot of about how you communicate um, what's happening in your project. That's a big risk to feel. And I, I still feel some of that risk and some of that pressure around making the right selections, but it's just the experience helps. Sometimes you make bigger compromises, I guess, like I may not want that commercial grade 3D printer, even though I have big eyes for it, you know, or I, I may not want actually that six axis mill, even though I am very wowed by really large industrial machinery. And I definitely a giant robot arm for the library. But, you know, it, that I, I can recognize that those might not be the specifically right tools. Also, the Kickstarter may not be the right tool for the library either. Sometimes the commercial mid-grade is actually a really good place to be because it's a little tougher and a little more tested and proven. So, But it's a good point about leadership because in some organizations, you know, you get two wrong misses and that's it. We're done innovating, right? So that's tough. Another thing that I've really learned a little bit more about is pacing with community relationships and how to figure out if a community partner is ready to work with a librarian and at what level. Mm. And that's something that at the beginning didn't quite get right all the time. Um, sometimes we would get really excited about working with a group, but then we'd come up with something that was maybe too resource intensive for a volunteer-based organization to actually sustain or we'd have a workshop instructor and they would get a little bit burned out because what we were asking them to do was a little too intensive and they maybe didn't know at the outset what they were getting into. So something that I'm feeling a little less stress about these days is finding that right level of connection and that right level of participation when we do want to work with community partners. Mm -hmm. There are still mistakes to be made. It, it can be hard to control, to find that balance between controlling like the excitement that you get when somebody wants to work with the library and you see the potential, you see the potential for the public to have a really rich learning experience. So it can be hard to kind of take that excitement, tamper it down a little bit and say, okay, but how is this actually going to happen? And do we actually have the right level of support from this organization or, or do we need to step back and try something that's a little bit lower input or a pilot or a trial or something like that? I love, I mean, I, I know some people probably are sick of the term pilot, but I love it because to me, it's a way of saying like, we're just not sure if this is going to work. So mm -hmm. let's, let's test it out and let's not commit. Uh, we're not making any claims that this is going to be yeah. But we have a pretty good idea and it's something we want to try. Yeah. So I, I really love that concept. I mean, I've really, I think I've traded pretty heavily on that in terms of testing out things that we're just not sure if it's going to be the right, mm -hmm. the right fit or the right time or the right folks to work with. Mm -hmm. I think about that all the time. And I'm so appreciative that the culture in which I work has built that over time and really gets on board because like I have to do a lot of technology things, but also I think about, okay, so sure, it didn't work out as planned or the hardware changed or the market changed, but I continue to receive internal and external requests for information and that expertise in and of itself, like going the distance, trying it out, seeing the limitations and then being able to confidently share with both other library systems or even internally with departments say, yeah, actually we've tested, we know the, the extent of this hardware or this tool. That's valuable. And how would we have that knowledge if we didn't try, right? So we often think, oh, it's only the, the deliverable of like this particular sensor, for example, and the sensor didn't work as planned. But actually all that other surrounding knowledge is also part of it. 
And I wouldn't be able to confidently say it, just as you said with community partners or even the hardware, right? If it was easy, everybody would be innovating, right? Like everybody would be doing it. So there is something to be said for, yeah, it's risk is painful, which is why not everyone does it. But when we do it, there is still something to be gained. So It's like, I remember, Lydia, the first time that I jammed my 3D printer at home. And I remember how scared I was to take apart the hot end. Because I was like, am I ever going to get this thing back together again? Is this, am I like blowing away like however many hundred dollars that I had to, you know, Whoa. convince the household to invest into this? <laughs> I was really scared. And I don't take it for granted when, I, when I'm asking staff to take that step, either alongside or on their own. It is really scary. Um, but I think when you get that 3D printer hot end back together and you get it working and you're like, you know what, if this happens again, I can unjam it. Relationships are kind of like in a, they work in a similar way, right? And you just have this extra level of knowledge and I think confidence around how you engage with people and what you're willing to put on the table at first, or if you're gonna be, if you're gonna be a little bit more cautious in going forward. Wisdom of motherhood. <laughs> we really tied this theme together. I, I gotta say, this episode. Thanks, is... Unknown Library Association. <laughs> A lot of the things you've discussed today, I'm seeing kind of the threads that in many ways it's not really different from, say, like information services or reference or whatever you want to call it, right? Like finding things out and figuring things out and learning new things for us as an organization about information and learning. In terms of, you know, you're talking about uh, setting things aside and then letting things percolate and then have those serendipitous interactions with others uh, or purposefully seeking them out and then returning. That's no different from strategies for solving like really complex reference questions. Like this is our new reference question. Right? It's like, how do I build a dragon whose wings <laughs> extend? <laughs> without supports <laughs> yeah so in many ways we we already do this like this isn't our wheelhouse there are already parallels and we already have a whole discipline for approaching this so we all have colleagues who who get in our board and and for them this is just like a new way to apply that learning the makerspace both as a showcase of physical things that were produced projects and I'll be honest with you, that didn't always work for me or maybe like as a, someone who may, needed to be convinced. Some people will respond to a tabletop, you know, object or a decal and some people will not and that's okay. But you've talked about the value of, in many ways, Makerspace is giving us vocabulary to talk about the cognitive processes and like the relationship processes that happen in the space as kind of that incubator or manifestation of that, that I can't get on board. <laughs> I mean, I shouldn't have to say that, like I kind of work in this department, but some people will respond to the objects and the examples and some people respond to the larger kind of, I don't know, community or learning process. But to have that, that's actually huge. So. It makes me think, though, of something where I want to move forward and I want to see our, our service move forward. And that's around, like, what kinds of making technologies are included. Because going back to that very first, very first thing that we talked about around who feels welcome and who feels like they have something to contribute in that space, I think we've had a, a very digitally focused experience so far. And I would love to see more craft 
and more art and more sort of fabrication included because I think that that just broadens like who feels like they have something to contribute. And that's really hard because there are realities around, you know, resourcing and around priorities and focus and where, which of those domains do you choose? That's a hard question to navigate. But I think that if there are even little ways that we can say to somebody who is a gardener, like, look at this amazing Arduino powered smart garden that was made, it creates this opening for more conversation and potential learning to happen around technology, but around also these other kinds of knowledge that are available in the community. Um, so that that's something in terms of where we're headed next, like, you know, 10 year old makerspace. Yeah. Kindergarten <laughs> and grade one. <laughs> this analogy just keeps on giving. Well, that's, that's kind of what I wanted to ask about next was, so imagine the 10 year old makerspace. What are some of the things that have been achieved now in the next five years? So the example, more types of making is one of the things that you'd like to see. Mm-hmm. What are some of the other milestones that you'd like to see in the next five years? I would love to see us doing a little bit more facilitation around sort of critical making. Mm. So the idea of gathering communities together to solve problems in the community. I think that some of our contemporaries um, in the general library community look at makerspaces and are really challenged because to your point about like not everybody's impressed by that 3D printed Pikachu on the table. Yeah. I totally understand that. But some people don't see the value in terms of like, what good is this? How does this make people's lives better? And I think that in our infancy, we've been coping with the issues around access and the issues around like maintenance, I guess, of the tools that we have chosen, right? And you you talked about that in another episode, so we don't even need to get into maintenance. I think that in terms of using the resources that we've gathered and whether that's tools or whether it's, you know, people or other community groups that we have sort of connections to at this point, really kind of exploring are there ways that we can gather a group of people together in the library space and have them work on something that is a real world issue and use that technology and experience to solve it. So again, that idea of critical making, and it could be truly the critical part of that as well. And that's a place that I would see going cautiously into, but if you are using a makerspace tool to critique a political system, the stakes are a little bit higher at that point. And could that happen in our space? I would love also, as as we've discussed in the past, Carla, to finally do the uh, HeboCon at the makerspace, a Someday. robotics competition for the technically ungifted. We will get there. <laughs> we'll put a link up on the site. It's yeah. the, greatest, the greatest thing of all time. So I just think what I'd love to see is that we've found some other ways other than just the tool choice to get different kinds of people into the makerspace participating and really having a good time and making fun connections, but also maybe learning a little bit of something at the same time. (laughs) We talked a bit about diversity before. Is that something that you'd like to see in the next five years? I'm always interested in that question and always looking for opportunities to bring people who may not be innately drawn to a high-tech, you know, sort of 
uh, HTC Vive, like the sexy new gadget. Yeah. Consumer electronics show mm-hmm. type of scenario. But I actually think that we're seeing quite a few strides in there. And some of it has been through programming and, and testing out like the idea of program that is specifically communicating to the LGBTQ community and really being intentional about how we how we try to engage that group. So some of it is tests like that. In our space, we've deliberately kept the barriers pretty low in terms of, you know, charging just to recover the material cost of something. So I see that as one way that libraries or institutions can keep things more accessible to a broader public. But I think it's also those programming opportunities to help different kinds of people see themselves as welcome and, and capable in that in maker spaces or at even as like more than just capable recognizing other expertise that's in the community as well. One of my staff was uh, assigned to deliver some Lego robotics programming for the English um, language school that's right next door. Most of the folks that she was she was working with were actually engineers by training. And so she didn't really have as much that she could show them or surprise (laughs) them with in terms of robotics and mechanical systems and building things. So it really became a really interesting community situation where you have people able to engage on a subject with hands-on materials and language is at play, but it's not like Back to that that other example of like talking to somebody for the first time in eight or nine years, like you're talking about something and you have something shared that you're that you're looking at, and people are bringing different experience to the table. So, you know, the staff member had the particular experience of running those Lego robots and being able to do things, but the engineers had a lot more in terms of like structural structurally stable <laughs> building and you know programming. So, to me, that's really exciting. Like I, I think bringing other kinds of expertise and other kinds of knowledge in is a really exciting direction. We've covered a lot of ground. Uh, so stay tuned for part two, where we <laughs> get into The makerspace at 10? Oh. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Wait for five years from now. <laughs> we were talking about makerspace in its old age. <laughs> Perhaps we'll host a part two where we get into games and media I what, know are, that. what are you playing right now just as a quick teaser for this potential upcoming episode i'm playing the red strings club i just finished my first playthrough of it it's a um retro style point and click adventure with a very cyberpunk blade runner setting it's very transhumanist in one of the first set pieces of the game i'm laving organs for people so it's uh yeah i highly recommend it if you're into that stuff whoa (laughs) so stay tuned for that i don't don't even know what lathing organs means but i guess we'll find out yeah it's it's cool but gross that's our hook yeah (laughs) come back to find out (laughs) well um thank you so much for the opportunity to speak with you about like a really favorite subject of mine (laughs) anytime yeah no, we're just so happy to have this opportunity. The title that started it all gave us enough to get into, but it's also obviously your vast expertise and time spent doing this that any question you could throw, we, we could go into so many directions. So thanks a lot. <laughs> and feel free to submit a question or a topic on our Twitter, 
and our website. All right. Thanks. Bye. Bye.